The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Wildfires are ravaging Northern California this week. The brunt of the destruction in the premium wine-producing regions of Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino counties. We talk with one owner who lost his winery to the ongoing blazes. The Metropolitan Water District has voted yes to financing their portion of the Delta Tunnels project. Does that mean this huge water transfer to Southern California is back on track? We'll tell you about other obstacles in their way. We find out about the latest in poultry biosecurity, as well as the efficiencies of overhead pivot irrigation. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Wildfires continue to rage throughout California, but especially here in Northern California. It seems futile to give you any numbers, but at press time, it was 22 fires that have burned 170,000 acres, 3,500 homes destroyed, 17 people have been reported killed in the blazes. But by the time you hear this, all those totals are sure to rise. It's going to take some time for farmers and officials to assess the full extent of agricultural damage. In Mendocino County, for example, the County Farm Bureau says some vineyards have burned, some have been singed, some are undamaged. Wine grape harvest has nearly ended in part of the fire-damaged area, but was continuing in other parts of the region, and that includes Napa and Sonoma counties. However, the Capitol Press reports that the California wine industry is seeking to ease consumer fears about any shortage of wine. Growers Association Associations know that the harvest was underway when wildfires kicked up late October 8th, and that harvest was about 90% complete. One of the reasons why it was completed so early, the heat wave back on Labor Day weekend when temperatures nearing 110 degrees spurred on a quicker harvest in order to save the grapes. What about that smoke? Well, smoke from nearby fires would have to cover vineyards for a long time to taint the grapes that are still there, and wineries can take measures to prevent smoke from damaging the fermenting grapes. Among the half-dozen wineries that have been consumed by the flames was Paradise Ridge Winery in Sonoma. Araya Varial of CBS News has this report from Paradise Ridge. These tanks are all full of Sauvignon Blanc. At the Paradise Ridge Winery, the scent of singed wine overpowers the stench of charred wood. The doors are completely melted. For Rene Bick and his family, the smells are a lingering reminder of how much they lost in a matter of hours. The entire 2017 harvest is... Is, is no longer. Two years of work and nearly 100,000 bottles of wine were destroyed Sunday night. Before they lost power, surveillance cameras from inside the winery's wedding venue caught the fire creeping closer. The family has been growing grapes and making wine here for nearly 40 years. The wine industry in Sonoma and Napa Valley employs more than 50,000 people, and at least six other wineries in this area have burned to the ground. It's our business, it's not our house, and I think that you know, a lot of people lost their house and lost everything, so I think we can rebuild this. The Golden Hills of Sonoma County are now colored black. Every single building on this property was burned. We're supposed to be receiving an award tonight for a best wedding venue in Sonoma County. But the sweetest part of their business, rows of grapevines were left behind. Looking at what I'm looking at, I, I want to say that next year we should be able to harvest grapes. That is a silver lining. Yeah, well, you got to find something. Something that's helping them move forward. I'm amazed that the vineyards are still here. Mireya Villarreal, CBS News, Santa Rosa, California.
Wine producers weren't the only ones affected by wildfires. Up in Butte County, cattle ranchers reported losing seed and hay barns. Farms near Bangor had to evacuate, that according to the California Farm Bureau Federation. Also, livestock in the Napa-Sonoma region had to be moved, going to shelters, equestrian centers, and fairgrounds in Calistoga and Vallejo. Here's a list of wineries seriously damaged or destroyed in the wine country fires, a list compiled by the San Jose Mercury News. In Napa County, the Helena View Johnston Vineyards in Calistoga. According to the owner's brother, this organic winery burned to the ground early morning and all was lost. The Signorello Estate Vineyards on Silverado Trail in Napa, the winery and residents in the Stags Leap District burned to the ground Monday. All 25 winery employees are safe, and proprietor Ray Signorello says he will rebuild. The Vin Rock Winery in Napa, the proprietor and winemaker Michael Parmenter had to evacuate late Sunday night. He confirmed that his Atlas Peak District winery and home were destroyed. Also in Napa, the White Rock Vineyards, owned by the same family since 1870, they've confirmed it was destroyed in the fire that ravaged nearby Soda Canyon Road. In Sonoma County, Santa Rosa's Paradise Ridge Winery was completely destroyed on Monday by the Tubbs Fire. Two wineries were destroyed in Mendocino County, Fry Vineyards in Redwood Valley. They're the country's first organic and biodynamic winery. They were lost in the Redwood Fire, and all wine orders have been suspended temporarily until the family can fully assess the loss. Also in Redwood Valley, the Oster Wine Cellars. That belongs to Ken and Teresa Fetzer. They specialize in limited production Cabernet Sauvignon. That, too, was destroyed in the Redwood Fire. It's another decline in U.S. pear production. USDA economist Agnes Perez says, in fact, The latest forecast for the 2017 U.S. pear crop is for it declining for a fourth consecutive year. With this year's crop production estimated at over 1.4 billion pounds, a 4% decline year over year. This year's production will be the smallest production reported since 1980, if realized. While pear production increased in both California and Oregon for the nation's largest pear-producing state, Washington state's production is forecast to be down 20% from last year. One tidbit of note, more pears, around two-thirds of this year's crop, is going to the fresh market, including Bartlett's, the main processed pear variety. Bartlett pears are still going to the processing, but there's an increasing share of Bartlett's going to the fresh market. And with the lower production forecast for pears, this is pointing to likely stronger pear prices during the marketing season. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Sacramento Bee reports that the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California has voted to pay for about a quarter of the Delta Tunnels Project. Officially called California Water Fix, the Delta Tunnels Project is Governor Jerry Brown's $17 billion effort to re-engineer the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta to improve water deliveries to South State cities and farms. Representing 19 million residents from San Diego to Riverside, Metropolitan became the largest agency to commit to the project. Its vote came three weeks after the farmers of the Westlands Water District in the San Joaquin Valley, who are fearful of the tunnel's eventual costs, dealt the project a near-fatal setback by refusing to commit to the financing. That metropolitan support, though, won't by itself get the tunnels built, as Westlands Water District's rejection has left a multi-billion dollar hole in the financing plan. 
Metropolitan's commitment, though, gives the Brown administration time and some momentum to develop a scaled-down version of the tunnels if Westlands doesn't change its mind. Despite Metropolitan's vote, the funding gap left by Westlands and potentially other farm districts remains a major stumbling block for the Delta tunnels. Those districts belong to the Federal Central Valley Project, which are recoiling from a cost-sharing formula that was imposed by U.S. officials. That formula exempts some key water agencies with senior water rights and no compelling need to support the tunnels. As other Central Valley Project customers join Westlands on the sidelines, the financial shortfall could reach $6 billion. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Alfalfa fields continue to be irrigated, cut, and baled. Sorghum fields were harvested. Cotton bulls continued to develop, and fields were prepped for harvest. Black-eyed beans continue to be harvested. The rice harvest is progressing well, aided by warm temperatures. Corn for silage was harvested. Peaches, nectarines, and plums continue to be picked and shipped to both domestic and foreign markets. Soil amendments were being applied to some stone fruit orchards. Finished raisin trays are being rolled up for pickup. Wine and table grape harvest is continuing. Asian pear, fig, and pomegranate harvest is ongoing. Kiwi fruit harvest is ramping up for the season. Persimmons were changing color. Most citrus packing houses prepped for the new navel orange season. Citrus orchards were skirted and trimmed for the upcoming season. Some orange groves are pushed out to make way for new plantings. Olives are harvested, and the crop was reported by some to be heavy. The almond harvest continues to wrap up across the state. Walnut and pistachio harvests are ongoing. The Brussels sprouts harvest is in full swing in San Mateo County. There was increased field activity for lettuce and broccoli in Monterey, though late planting may delay harvest. Fall vegetables developed well in Tulare, with some early varieties nearly ready for harvest. Tomatoes, sweet corn, okra, cucumber, squash, and peppers are being picked by certified producers. Pumpkin patches matured, and they're being prepped for harvest. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland is reported to be in poor to very poor condition. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Cattle were moved down from higher elevation ranges. Northern Sierra foothill wildfires burned rangeland and forced evacuations of large animals across the north part of California. Last week, we told you about the Mediterranean fruit fly infestation in Salado County. A quarantine has been established in parts of Fairfield that inhibits movement of produce from that area. The only way for growers to receive permission to ship their crops outside the quarantine zone is to have applied the organically acceptable pesticide spinosad four times during a 30-day period. However, Steve Lyle of the California Department of Food and Agriculture says there are a couple of other ways for farmers to deal with the Mediterranean fruit fly in Solano County. Okay, so growers in this situation have three options. One is to do nothing and, and close product fruits and vegetables can't move off-site. Second option is, is a pre-harvest bait spray, which will permit the movement of, of host material anywhere. And then another option is to sign a compliance agreement that they will move product to a processor, uh, which will also sign a compliance agreement. And the processing in and of itself will, will mitigate the risk of spread. Lyle adds that the processor can be located outside the quarantine zone, but within the same county. However, the processor could be in another county if they have the approval from the ag commissioner. In the next 10 to 20 years, will our farmers be much the same as they are now, doing much the same thing as they're doing now and doing it in the same way? Well, I think what we're looking at now is a fundamental change in what that person's going to look like. Moving to armchair farming, we're going to be making our decisions sitting in front of the computer. Farmers have to be much smarter. And willing to 
work in an interdependent system rather than being independent and be very... Opinions there from four experts in the video panel that the Alltech company put on the other day. All of them said rapid current advances in biological science, access to huge amounts of data, new farming technologies, and increasing consumer say in what our farmers do and how they do it could change the nature of our farmers. And Purdue University economist Dr. Michael Bolge says it may shift farmers and farming... From growing stuff to biological manufacturing. Which made one panel member Wince. Biological manufacturing. That's a terrible term. Mary Shelvin is a Kentucky farm owner, former director of the Harvard Business School's agribusiness program. Consumers now don't want their food manufactured in any kind of factory. And Dr. Bulgy says he agrees. I'm not going to get in front of a group of consumers and try to promote this as a way to think, but certainly it's a way we in the industry at the production level increasingly have to have a mental mindset because it allows us to facilitate the process process of growing and producing food much more uh, scientifically and much better than we have in the past. He says farmers increasingly will need to know much more about biology of plants and animals and how to use the new sciences to produce the different products that consumers want because we have consumers increasingly telling the entire chain what we want, how we want it, and how it ought to be done. Which he says will mean farmers are going to have to be on top of this, analyzing markets, using science, working with customers. He says agriculture as a whole right now is still in the mode of... If I produce it, they will come. That is not the industry of tomorrow. And Aidan Connolly with Alltech's Innovation Office says tomorrow's farmers are likely to be a lot different from today. They won't necessarily grow up on a farm. They might grow up in the city. They won't necessarily have the skills of maybe understanding animals or understanding plants. They'll understand data, they'll understand analytics, they'll understand equipment, they'll understand decision-making between all the various technologies and what the person should buy and what they shouldn't invest in. Or as Alltech's chief scientific officer, Dr. Carl Dawson, put it, It's not your daddy's farm anymore. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Early indications point to the potential for lower turkey prices for the upcoming holiday season. American Farm Bureau analysts say farmers across the nation have been building turkey flocks and that wholesale prices for whole birds have been well below average for most of the year. California ranks eighth in the nation in turkey production. Most California-grown whole turkeys are sold fresh rather than frozen. HPAI, PEDV, BSE. Those acronyms, and others like them, have become more well-known in the farm sector especially, and to many consumers as well. They are shorthand for threatening animal diseases that, over the last two decades, have created negative economic impacts for producers and processors. But the increased cost, decreased revenue, if you're the one with the outbreak. And in some cases, consumer concerns related to food safety. This, in turn, has led to increased planning for prevention and response by all stakeholders. We needed some sort of flexible plan to address these newly emerging diseases. Leanne Thomas of the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service and Ray Massey of University of Missouri Extension join me, Rod Bain, for a look at planning to prevent or respond to a potential animal disease outbreak in this edition of Agriculture USA. Planning. It may be perhaps the most significant action a livestock or poultry producer, a processor, or other stakeholders such as government organizations can take in prevention of, protection from, and response to an animal disease outbreak. And like any plan, periodic assessment and adjustment may be needed. 
Leanne Thomas of USDA APHIS Veterinary Service says the process among stakeholders nationwide began three years ago with the growing threat of animal diseases to agribusiness. Such as porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, West Nile virus, and more recently porcine epidemic diarrhea virus have made us realize that our traditional response plans for such diseases as foot and mouth disease or classical swine fever virus or avian influenza is that we needed some sort of flexible plan. And with that, a new emerging animal disease outbreak preparedness and response plan was released earlier this year, one that emphasizes flexibility. Thomas calls this plan a living document. The general overall framework or process would likely remain the same. It's just the small component may be changed to address a new situation that we hadn't considered with an emerging animal disease. So say an emerging disease, a virus, is detected. Thomas says as part of the general framework of the plan. We would provide information that would feed into the analysis that would take place. And they would look at the results of that analysis and what risk was determined associated with that particular virus. Based on the risk, we would then look at possible response options. And our response options can vary greatly. Options ranging from placing a disease threat on a watch list to the extreme case of formal control and eradication if needed to respond to an animal disease threat or outbreak. University of Missouri Ag Economist Ray Massey agrees flexibility is essential in any plan dealing with an animal disease outbreak, but is most important in the prevention and prep stages, well before any disease emerges. There needs to be this written plan of how to keep it from happening, and then if it does happen, how do I control it or deal with it? He says on the individual operation level, such a biosecurity plan should include potential hazard assessment, management strategies that factor in possible contingencies or flexibilities, and the cost related to prevention and response. In a difficult situation like this, all the rules change. The things you normally would have access to, you may not have access to. So you have to build in that flexibility to say, I think I can access it from a different location, or I have the finances from the banker to give me the flexibility to do something differently. Yet the most important part of any animal disease prevention and response plan crafted by a farm owner or operator is communication. The key thing is not just that you have it in writing and that you have these contingencies, this flexibility, but that you share it with different people that are going to be involved in it. From the economic perspective, Massey says livestock and poultry producers should think of their plans as a form of insurance. Prepare the plan and then share it with the banker saying, hey, I have an idea of how to get through this. But I need essentially a promissory note or a line of credit in case this happens that you're aware of it so that he knows what the expenses are likely to be and how long you're likely to be needing a line of credit. Likewise, communication with dealers in advance can help producers in securing needed equipment in the event of an animal disease outbreak. Leanne Thomas of USDA APHIS says no matter the size or scope of an animal disease prevention and response plan, from individual farm to nationwide, all parties need to come together and communicate, collaborate to have the most successful response to any emerging animal disease in the United States. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
Have you ordered sweet potato fries recently? Well, farmers in California's main sweet potato growing region say, hey, you've contributed to an uptick in demand. Harvest is well underway in Merced County. That county accounts for about 90% of the state's sweet potato production. Farmers say they hope their crop will ultimately come close to matching last year in volume. North Carolina leads the nation in sweet potato production. California ranks second. President Trump will begin a trip to Asia November 3rd. He'll visit Japan, South Korea, China, Vietnam, and the Philippines. And we are advising his policymakers now of the opportunities we have in that arena. Agricultural trade opportunities. This from Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. He told the Washington International Trade Association Wednesday that Japan, for example, is a good market for U.S. ag products. But it could, frankly, be a lot better. Because there are still quite a few restrictions to U.S. products there. We want to bring down high tariffs on beef and pork and dairy and fruits and vegetables and many other products. We're eager to enter into a bilateral trade negotiation with Japan. In China, the trade returns are much more numerous, but Purdue said for starters, the U.S. needs freer access for many U.S. products, including rice, poultry, corn products, broader access for livestock products, and of course, biotech. Purdue said he hopes the president's trip will pave the way for more trade discussions with many Southeast Asian nations. We think we can have more products going to those markets as well. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The fall waterfowl migratory season is underway across the country. And as Dr. Jack Scher of USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service points out, so are efforts to increase the vigilance of poultry producers, whether their flocks are commercial or backyard in scale, to protect their birds from biosecurity threats like highly pathogenic avian influenza. We know that wild waterfowl carry and spread this virus, and they spread it to poultry. Once the virus has adapted to poultry, then it takes on a rapid form and it spreads rapidly. Two APHIS-based programs offer resources and awareness of biosecurity measures for poultry producers. First, backyard biosecurity for the birds. That really was started after the exotic Newcastle disease outbreak of 2003 and was developed so that the backyard producers would have a resource site to look at what they should do to protect their birds. Then the 2014-15 high-path AI outbreak and its impacts to commercial poultry operators led to creation of Defend the Flock. We wanted to also have something for the commercial producers, and that was created to look at and to provide information on gaps in biosecurity measures that the commercial folks might have, increase their awareness, and train them in biosecurity measures that were simple that the companies and the growers could implement to protect their flocks. Cher says the emphasis is similar for both programs. Producers should consider their poultry unit as separate and that everything else outside that unit that is brought in could lead to infection. For all producers that have poultry, basically keep your birds away from wild waterfowl and do the best you can to prevent anything from being introduced into the flock from outside the flock. So we tell them things like make sure that everything that you bring into the flock is cleaned and disinfected, change your boots, change your coveralls, don't go in, don't be around other people's poultry and go deal with your poultry because you can bring any infectious disease from them to you. And also keep the wild birds out of your facility. Clean up feed spills, those kinds of things. In addition, producers must keep vigilant on any changes within their poultry flocks. Look to see if there's any changes, any reduction in feed consumption, any decrease in egg production, any birds that just don't act right, that seem weak or separate themselves or just don't act like they normally do. Those are signs that things are different in the flock and that they should do what they can to get that flock tested. 
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. More and more farmers are finding out about the benefits of conservation tillage. What a lot of farmers don't realize, the water-saving benefits of using an overhead pivot system. The University of California's Conservation Agricultural Systems Innovations Program has more details. The coupling of conservation tillage with overhead mechanized irrigation has the potential to transform traditional production paradigms and lead to higher efficiencies, increased profitability, and greater resource conservation. My name is Armando Galvin. I manage uh, Five Points Ranch. We have a wide variety of crops, cotton, processed tomatoes, processed garlic, processed onions, wheat, alfalfa, alfalfa hay. We're farming about 8,000 acres, and so far we've got about 16 pivots. Recently, a few innovative farmers, researchers, and private sector partners have begun to design, test, and improve conservation agriculture systems that effectively merge conservation tillage with overhead precision irrigation. I'm Daryl Cordova, Denaire, California. Crops uh, I grow with uh, overhead irrigation are uh, silage for the dairies using uh, forage mix and also corn for silage. We've been using minimum tillage to uh, incorporate our crops and uh, this year with the corn we're going to try the uh, no-till with the no-till planter. In California, generally our summer crops are 100% irrigation and our winter crops are anywhere from one-third to two-thirds irrigation. Plus our temperatures are so high here that water demand is very significant. So that is a, is a nuance that you have to keep in mind when we're working at conservation tillage. Water is the key to everything. The water's not there and the water's not right, forget it. But the other thing that we've always done here is we've done tillage in California uh, in order to facilitate this irrigation management. John Diener, a farmer in Five Points, California, is someone who's begun to work on coupling overhead irrigation and conservation tillage technologies. All the tillage we did prior to having pivots was done primarily so we could run water from one end of the field to the other and put it on uniformly. With this practice, we have eliminated the need to have such great uniformity on the soil surface, and as such, then we can do more non-tillage type practices that allow us to store more carbon in the soil. We're all looking for more efficiencies on the farm. The growers are able to spend less time in the field and through the fields with equipment. You decrease compaction to the soil. You're able to utilize an overhead irrigation system that allows you to put water on when and where you need it in the field. You can uh, have vary your rates through the field for different soil conditions in a field. And in this case, you're also able to chemigate and fertigate. With overhead irrigation systems and the sprinkler packages that we have attached to them is that they're highly uh, uh, efficient systems and they're efficient because they apply water uniformly. If we time this properly with proper irrigation scheduling techniques, we can reduce the amount of water that's applied. This irrigation system is tied into three wells along with a dairy wastewater line. He will save in his fertilizer cost right away. It's going to alleviate a lot of standing wastewater around the dairy also because he's able to pump that water out to the fields. A center pivot irrigation system has basically no standing wastewater in the field and that's critical in California. Our biggest advantage would be water savings and labor savings. We were growing these processed onions conventionally, cost about $1,900 an acre. We're usually on conventional, we're making 20 tons 
We're making 18 tons on the pivot, and it's costing us about $14.50 an acre. We don't have any runoff anymore. Uh, it uh, really works out great. It saves us a lot of time. I can come and walk away from it, whereas I was spinning six hours a day with uh, hand-moved pipes before. Labor is a dear resource, and uh, having the qualified people uh, necessary to accomplish the tasks that we have are getting fewer and farther between. As a consequence, we're going to have to adapt the technology towards mechanical devices as with the irrigation system that we have with the pivot. With this, we have the adaptability to the internet and to movement of this machine. This is an iPhone app for FieldNet. And what I can do is I can control the percentage of how fast I want to go. I can control chemigation. I can control any accessories that I got out there. And it's all right here, easy. I don't have to run to the office. I don't have to run home to my computer. I got it right here on the fly. Time savings, big thing. Overhead mechanized irrigation is currently the most prevalent form of irrigation nationwide. And yet it is currently estimated to be used in less than 1% of California's crop acreage. Our biggest problem when we started out was getting these things stuck. But I was able to go down to Washington, go down to Idaho, talk to some of these fellows what they were doing. So we did have to go out of state, but it looks like it'll be a lot more help locally now. And that's basically what I did is just talking with people and, and checking on different units. You know, we talked to Valleys, we talked to a few guys from Ranky, Zomatic, you know, we've talked to all of them. Definitely everybody's been a, a help. In California, we're able to use center pivots on a wide variety of crops, from vegetables, row crops, a lot of forage crops, cotton. You need to understand how your soil takes the water. You've got to maintain wheel tracks, which keeps the system from getting stuck. All of that needs to be done in the first year when the system's in because the grower will learn how and when he needs to irrigate. There have been, as any technology, some learning curve as to getting employees adapted to the, the management of the pivot itself. But on the whole, after a, a minimal amount of time, we've been able to accomplish that. We're not there yet. We're, we're, our, our goal is to make 20 tons. We're at 18 tons right now now, but we're working on it. So this is the wave of the future. Contributing to that report were Monty Billens of California Ag Solutions, Rick Hanshaw of Renke Manufacturing, and Dan Monk, University of California Farm Advisor. If you've driven down Interstate 5 in the Central Valley, you may have seen overhead irrigation sprinklers at work, and you may be thinking to yourself, whoa, what a waste of water that is. Well, I got to tell you, there has been some research done here in California that shows that overhead irrigation is actually fairly efficient in the 21st century. And not only that, only 2% of California agriculture is using overhead irrigation, whereas other parts of the country, it's much greater. The studies done by UC Davis have shown that by using overhead irrigation, farm profits can be the same or even greater by using it effectively. How has it improved over the years? We're talking with University of California Cooperative Extension, Jeffrey Mitchell. And Jeff, there is a, a lot of misconceptions about overhead irrigation systems, and they have really revolutionized agriculture across the United States since they were introduced, what, 60 years ago or so? Right, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's it's been a, a very uh, curious and uh, interesting history. The, the first pivot or overhead system, and I think we'd better clear up some things for the for your listeners and for the audience here, by overhead irrigation, we're talking about 
another term that, that it is used often for that kind of irrigation is mechanized irrigation. These are the, uh, the, the overhead pipes that have drop hoses and nozzles that apply water through uh, the, the overhead pipe, typically in a circle. So there's a moving, rotating arm that covers the complete uh, circular area of a field there. That's one form. It's called a center pivot overhead mechanized irrigation system. Another form that your listeners might, might be familiar with is called a linear move, and that is just essentially an overhead pipe of water that, again, has hoses on it and drop uh, nozzles that come just above the ground surface, and they apply water very efficiently, moving back and forth across the field in a linear uh, move kind of a fashion there. So we're not talking about the the sprinkler irrigation systems that many folks are very familiar with, and those are typically aluminum pipes that, that uh, farm uh, irrigators will move from one field to another throughout the growing season. We're actually talking about uh, a permanent uh, infrastructure, uh, a system that is uh, that is used to irrigate uh, many, many years. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the history of the center pivot itself, it, it was actually made by a farmer, Charles Zyback, Z-Y-B-A-C-H, back in 1956. And he came up with the idea, the original concept, and then it was... Uh, the patent was uh, bought out by one of the four large irrigation companies uh, that exist uh, to, uh, to today. Uh, and whereas the, you know, there are something like 80,000 center pivots in the state of Nebraska, which, by the way, actually beats our own state of California as having more irrigated acreage, surprisingly. People might not think about that, but that's actually true. So there's a lot of irrigation goes in Nebraska that goes on in Nebraska. And by and large, the majority of that is, is overhead mechanized center pivot irrigation. So from that, that very humble beginning by the farmer in the 1956, not only throughout the United States, Fred, but internationally, globally, uh, center pivots and overhead mechanized irrigation systems have had a major uh, role to play. It's, it might be curious for folks to realize that across our country, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture compiles uh, irrigation system data or, 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 or numbers on these kind of things, over half, to half of the irrigation that is done in, our, in the United States is actually with overhead irrigation. So that's, that's kind of surprising for a lot of California folks, but it is a very dominant, prevalent system throughout our country. Back between 2008 and 2013, you were part of a team that did studies down at Five Points where you evaluated overhead irrigation. You studied uh, overhead irrigation with wheat, with corn, with cotton, tomato, onion, and broccoli as an alternative to either furrow irrigation or drip irrigation, with the results being equal or increased yields were achieved with overhead irrigation with the exception of tomatoes. And I guess that's part of the problem with adapting to overhead irrigation is the wider variety of crops that are grown in California versus what may be grown in Nebraska, for example. Fred, that's exactly right. And, and the tremendous diversity that, that is a truly a hallmark of California's phenomenal productivity over the years, historically, uh, that presents lots of challenges. And, and you're absolutely right. We, we, we try to a very diverse array of crops, and we uh, compared them with today's current standard 
way back when we started, uh, furrow or surface irrigation had more of a play, more of a role in the valley than it, than it probably does today and that it's likely to have in the future. But we also compared the overhead system uh, with drip irrigation, subsurface or surface uh, drip irrigation systems, which themselves are very, very uh, uniform. They're highly efficient, uh, and they're kind of the, the gold standard or the Cadillac system right now. But you're right. We we had some learning curve uh, issues that we had to learn and, and overcome and negotiate. But by and large, uh, the systems were highly uniform, what's called the distribution uniformity. It's the, the calculation or the measurement of how uniformly water is distributed over a, a field by a given system. It had uh, distribution uniformity numbers or values are roughly about 93%, which is pretty much on a par with subsurface drip. So uh, we had uh, this variety of crops that you listed there, uh, and by and large, the, the overhead system performed quite well. We should point out to people that if they have the image of an overhead irrigation system as giant impulse sprinklers spraying way over a crop field, that actually probably low elevation spray application systems or even sort of a modified bubbler head, which provides low level irrigation, are much more effective and have less evaporation. That's absolutely right. So, yeah, again, it's important for for the for your your audience to to imagine that unlike in the early days of the technology uh probably 20 or 30 years ago one of the tremendous advances in the, in the systems or the technology the the application or delivery system is is just as what you just described there so they're not sprinklers way atop a 16 foot high pipe anymore they used to be those kind of high pressure systems they're relatively low pressure. They don't require a lot of uh, uh, pressure for the pressurized water. Uh, and they are delivering water uh, through what are called drop hoses. They're just flexible rubber hoses that come right out of the top of the pipe. And they they uh, feed into uh, pressure regulators that, again, uh, uniformly apply the same amount or the, the, the necessary engineered amount of water per a given area along the span of pipe. And they're they're relatively low uh, application devices that are maybe a foot, two feet uh, above the soil surface. So yes, there there have been these kind of improvements in the technology and the delivery systems that have made plus the the, the whole array of nozzling packages that uh, that that have been developed that allow. Uh, a great variety of, of application techniques. One of the big criticisms of center pivot irrigation systems has been it leaves off the edges of the field. It doesn't hit all portions of a field equally. What are the options for a farmer in that regard? Well, that's a good question. And, and I, there are a variety of uh, ways that people can address that. Some people will say, well, I don't I really don't have the water, particularly in the water short times that we're facing in recent years, uh, and they will they will concentrate their efforts on a very uh, uniform, uh, if, it, if it is a circular uh, center pivot system, on, on just irrigating uh, the the circular uh, portion of a of a square rectangular field. There, uh, there are other other more ingenious kinds of approaches there for getting those corners, those areas that are typically not. Uh, irrigated by a, a straight 
center pivot system. There are what are called swing arms that uh, cost a little bit more, but they, uh, the major irrigation center pivot irrigation companies now provide arms that will automatically swing out and uh, get a greater proportion of that corner area there, and then then they'll tuck back in or fold back in uh, as the circle circle continues there. So that's another technology, or you know, just just uh, trying to uh, develop some other system or some other approach for managing those corners there. But in the in the really watertight, water short areas, where the water is the short part of the whole proposition there, and that's that's where. Uh, maybe these will have some some greater play in the future as well. And as your report points out, many variables are involved in the choice of an irrigation system, but your results suggest that with more research to support better management practices, overhead irrigation may be more useful to a wider set of California farmers than currently use it, which is, what, 2 or 3%. I, I fully agree with that. I think that's a, a reasonable uh, projection and a statement of, and an assessment of where we are right now. Uh, I, I would certainly imagine and, and predict that, that the, the technology is going to have a much wider role in, in, in irrigation in, in some systems in California than it has had in the past. He's been studying overhead irrigation for a long time. Jeff Mitchell of UC Davis and the UCANR Cooperative Extension. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us telling us more about what's old is new again, overhead irrigation. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.